You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering your body together here this morning. Thank you that we can meet here today. Lord, allow our hearts to be captured by your word this morning. Give us soft hearts that we would seek to understand in in Psalm 32 this morning what it has for us. We pray all this in the name of your son. Amen. Welcome to a steamy morning here at Redeemer Bible Church. There are some mornings in the winter where I wish it felt like this inside our building. Uh, but it's going to be a little bit warmer than normal today. But as we open up to Psalm 32, I'd encourage you to be turning there, Psalm 32. I want to introduce you to someone. She lived in the the 1940s in in the Netherlands. And as the Nazis rolled violently over massive swaths of Europe, Corrie Ten Boom was living in her house, above the family's business, which was a clock and watch repair shop. There she lived with her sister, her two aunts, and her father. The Ten Booms were a wonderful, gracious, courageous Christian family. And each evening they would sit around and listen while Casper Ten Boom, the father, would read to them. And during those times of reading God's word, they formed some convictions that certainly led to them to some extreme action. You see, the Ten Booms knew that the evils being perpetrated against the Jewish people had to be resisted. So they began hiding and smuggling Jews in and out of their house for safety. Eventually, as their operation grew and grew, additional reinforcements were needed. So one day a man showed up. And he discreetly wired a buzzer system throughout their entire house to warn of approaching Nazi Gestapo. And then a little while later, I I told you they had a clock and watch repair shop. So in hollowed out large grandfather clocks came bricks and mortar, followed by a cunning craftsman who would come and install a secret room on the back wall of Corey Ten Boom's bedroom. In this eight-by-eight bedroom, this wall sat out about two feet, so it was just big enough for six or seven people to hide in there. Now, all of these measures were successful, albeit only for a time, until the tin booms were betrayed and their home was raided. During this raid, the Gestapo placed out in front a sign that was usually used by the tin booms to signal that the coast was clear, everything was good, you could come in as you pleased if you were part of the Dutch resistance. But the Gestapo placed the sign out there, and by the end of the raid that day, 30 people had been arrested, headed for concentration camps in Germany. Nevertheless, it's estimated that the tin booms saved over 800 people alongside the Dutch resistance, and this is all cataloged in Corey Ten Boom's book called The Hiding Place, which if you've got an eight-hour drive somewhere ahead of you, download the audiobook, listen to it, 
I know that you'll be encouraged. But I want to introduce you to Corey today because her courage and witness led her to set up a refuge, a hiding place for oppressed Jews. And I believe this is a brilliant picture of what we're going to see today in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. The title of today's sermon is Covered in Sin and Hidden in Christ. I believe this is what we'll see today in Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, we meet King David. And specifically, we meet him at a time where he looks back on the darkest hour of his life, namely his sin with Bathsheba. And so to make sure we're all kind of on the same page and ready to encounter Psalm 32 today, I want to give you a bit of a flyover, both in 2 Samuel 7, or 2 Samuel 11, sorry, and then also in Psalm 51. You see, back in 2 Samuel 11, King David sees Bathsheba, he takes her for his own, and she becomes pregnant. He then calls her husband, Uriah, who's fighting a battle for him. He calls him back from battle to cover his tracks. But Uriah is too honorable and says, I will not lay with my wife while the battle still rages. So how does King David respond to this loyalty? How does he repay Uriah? He signs his death certificate and sends Uriah back to the battlefield. This death certificate says, put Uriah in the fiercest fighting at the front of the battle so that with him, he will surely die and with him, all evidence of my sin will be laid to rest. Here, David shows himself to be an envious, manipulative, adulterous, murderous man. The multitude of sins he committed during this affair are almost too many to number and too awful to understand. And then in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11, it says that God was displeased with what David had done. Now God loved David, so he sends his prophet to him to rebuke David. And after some time, David finally comes clean and says, I have sinned against the Lord. But it's truly the next statement that sets up the couple of psalms we'll look at. Because Nathan responds to David and says, God has put away your sin. And it's in the wake of this mind-boggling statement that David first pins Psalm 51, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And it's these two texts that act as, they act as a foundation for what we'll see today in Psalm 32. David has been through the darkest hour of his sin. He's written Psalm 51 as a prayer of plea and repentance. And now he's going to write Psalm 32 to reflect on the entire situation. And so it's with that backstory in mind that it asks you to look in your copy of the scriptures and read with me the first two verses of today's text, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 says a maskil of David blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whom spirit 
there is no deceit. Now, we have just spent five or so minutes replaying the awful sin in David's life that led him to this point, and yet David begins this magnificent psalm with blessed. Now, varying translations will refer to this differently, so let me give you some examples so you can truly appreciate the contrast of what's going on here. The NASB says something similar to the ESV, but it says, how blessed. And to me, this communicates the plurality of blessing David is talking about, that it's blessing upon blessing, overwhelmingly so. The CSB takes a different approach and says, how joyful, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. How joyful is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Each one of these examples further clarifies in my mind just what David is trying to communicate, that he's experiencing a blessedness and joy unrivaled in his life up to this point. This is a wonderfully written psalm, and it carries that unique heading, maskil. Now, I didn't know how to pronounce that word, so I went to Google, I went to three different websites, and I got three different pronunciations. So however you say it, I'm sure is fine. But the term maskil refers to its use probably as either lyrics or liturgy, that it would be used in a song or used in a service. And I believe David lays out the stanzas of this psalm in such a way that it helps the reader understand how he can make a, such an audacious statement in verses 1 and 2. So this morning, what we'll do is we'll treat verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32 like a chorus or a refrain, just like that of any worship song we'd sing here at Redeemer. Redeemer will repeat it in hopes that by the end of today, we truly understand it. And that's all in service of this. We want to answer one question today. How has David arrived at this point? In Psalm 32, 1 and 2, where he's exceedingly joyful, even in the shadow of his egregious sin. This, I believe, is what David is trying to show us and teach us in this psalm. He's showed us what relief is found even after sin in his life. And to support those for us, he lays out these stanzas showcasing what he truly believes and his reason for the confidence in his blessing. So today we'll look at the first seven verses of Psalm 32. And here's how I've broken them out. If you're taking notes, listen here. Psalm 32 verses 3 through 5 will be our first section. And that's David believes God hears him. David believes God hears him. Then we'll move on to verses 6 and 7. And that's where David believes God hides him. David believes God hides him. Now, I said, though, that we're in search of what verse 1 and 2 mean. We'll come back to those at the end. And what we see there is that in verses 1 and 2, David believes God has counted him righteous. He believes that God has counted him righteous. So first, let's go to Psalm 32, verse 3 through 5, and I'll read those for us. This is David speaking, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In these verses, David retells his story. He gives us some insight into what's going on in his mind and heart after he sinned. Now, what's his first reaction to sin? We see it there in verse 3. It's to keep silent. It's to hide. Now, why? Why is this happening? Why do all humans seek to keep silent and hide when we sin? Well, it might be guilt. We can't stand the thought of owning up to our own actions, and we feel so awful about what we've done that we just go deeper into silent hiding. Could be shame. We're deceived into thinking that our sin is unforgivable, that God and others will have nothing to do with us if they knew how we messed up. It's like this guilt and shame instinctively tell us that the only way we can find solace is by hiding our sin because then at least there's the possibility that no one else will ever know what we've done. Certainly this is part of David's motivation that with Uriah, the only true eyewitness to his sin, that with him being out of the picture, all evidence will never be found out. Now David continues in the next verse to clarify what's truly going on in his heart. Into verse 3, into verse 4. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David describes this feeling that all of us are all too familiar with. It's the weight on your chest, pit in your stomach feeling, the constant mind racing, looking over your shoulder panic. It's the feeling, that gut-wrenching, heart-pounding reminder that the sin we have committed is not in secret, but it's known to a holy God. David says this plainly for us in verse 4, For day and night your hand was on me. Making him feel as though he was in the desert being baked by an unrelenting sun or in a parking lot with no shade. So Paul, speaking of unbelievers, way forward in Romans, he tells us what might be going on here. Romans 2, verse 15, speaking of the Gentiles, says that they show that their, the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. As image bearers of God, it doesn't matter if you've believed in the gospel or not, God's mark is on his creation, and he's equipped each of us to be aware of our sin. And so, with each sin that we commit, we heap up more and more guilt and shame, and to find any sort of retreat, we run from God. Consider quickly Adam and Eve. What was their first reaction to sin? To hide, to cover themselves in shame because their conscience convicted them. We see this reality played out time and time again in scripture and in our own experience. 
As humans created in the image of a holy God, we are hardwired to know the difference in good and evil. God has built into each one of us the ability to weigh our actions, and he has graciously given us all an internal warning light to signal to the rest of our body when we are in danger. It's called our conscience. Now you can think about your conscience much like you think about your check engine light on your car. Us, a lot of us are not so mechanically inclined. We may not know there's an issue. We're driving down the road and our car knows there's an issue and it throws up this light. And thereby we know I gotta go get this fixed before a bigger problem follows. Now sadly, there's many in our congregation and our own hearts and throughout the world that seek to silence the conscience. And it really reminded me of a old mechanic, I think it was like a Jiffy Lube commercial. This exacerbated mom got into the vehicle, all her kids are piling in, her check engine light pops on and what's she do? She grabs the nearest monkey sticker that she's got in the van and puts it over the check engine light, trying to mute her check engine light, much like we try to mute our conscience sometimes. Now we've all done this at one time or another. We've tried to mute our conscience, but if you're here this morning and the word of God is moving in you, it's bringing to light sin that you've previously hidden. You resonate with David when he's talking about this gut-wrenching feeling. Then please do what David is about to do in verse 5 and confess. Look at verse 5. With his check heart light raging, David confesses his sin. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In this confession, David recounts each and every synonym he used for sin back in verses 1 and 2. Sin, iniquity, transgression, and he lays them all at the feet of the holy God. He does this as if to say, I'm, I'm holding nothing back here. Here's all of it. Here's all my guilt and garbage. Here's all my lies and lusts. I'm laying it all before you. I'm throwing off this translucent veil, which I thought would bring me much comfort. David concludes verse 5 with what I believe is his true reason for rejoicing. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's joy and blessing is not merely in his confession, but in the fact that the one to whom he's confessing heard him and forgave him. David finally understood that he could hide no longer. He had to repent. This is what we need to understand, that our sin is repulsive to God and we must repent. Every day we run back to him and like David, we should not be looking for excuses or justifications for our sin, just honest confession. We see in David him stating his sin fully and plainly before God, followed only by his cry for repentance. And in so doing, David sets an excellent example for us today because true confessions end with periods and not with commas. Now, David believes that God hears him. But after being heard by God, David is going to reveal another truth 
that has brought him much joy. And for that, we're going to look in verses 6 and 7. David believes God hides him. Let me read that for you. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now back in verses 3 through 5, David was retelling the story. And now in verse 6, he's going to shift into instructions for the reader. He begins with, therefore, which is calling us back to his prayer of repentance, his confession, the one that he offered to God. And then after calling us back to his prayer, he says, you should pray too. Basically what he's saying is, do as I say, not as I do. Don't start where I started, just start where I ended. Do what I should have done all along if you find yourself in sin. Don't pull back from God, run to him in prayer. He continues, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. For the one who will go to the Lord in prayer, in confession and repentance, the waves of guilt and grief over sin will not approach him. Run to him and he will deliver. But I believe in verse 7, this is where David's true joy comes from. When he turns the conversation back to God and says what? You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David calls God his hiding place. Now this is the same David who fled King Saul and found refuge in a cave. This is the same David who was betrayed and threatened by his son Absalom and was forced to hide across the Jordan. And David has had seemingly a lifetime of hiding from death threats and conspiracies. And even though those preserved his life at the time, his ultimate confession is that God is his hiding place. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is your hiding place or that David is hidden in God? I think we need to go back to Corey Ten Boom. You see, she was a hiding place for many Jews. And thereby, they were protected. They were sheltered, comforted. Means that she was on their side. She cared for them. She watched over them. This is what David is trying to explain to us when he says, you are my hiding place. Now, in fact, there's more to the Ten Boom story than I let you know earlier. Because on that fateful day of the Gestapo raid, as they watched all these people funnel in and arrested about 30, they never found the secret room. Two days later, members of the Dutch resistance would go back into the Tin Boom residence and rescue six people from the secret room. This is what it feels like to be hidden, to be truly hidden, to be hidden in God. Because of David's awful sin and his futile attempt to cover himself and hide from God, he now confidently says that it's only in God that I truly have refuge. Sin seeks to send us into hiding, and there we find company for our misery. 
But for the believer, the only thing you're hiding from when you're in unrepentant sin is your joy and blessing. Why is David joyful and blessed even after his sin with Bathsheba? Because he believes that God is his hiding place. Now, we've seen that David believes that God has heard him, believes that God has hidden him. But I think to fully understand what either of those truly mean, we must find the true source of David's joy, and that's back in what I called the chorus of this psalm, the first two verses. And it's here that we'll see that God believes, David believes, sorry, that God has counted him righteous. So read again with me, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In these two verses, there is no trace of guilt. There is no sign of shame. How is that? We've said it over and over, that David has sinned in ways that we can barely imagine. If he were standing here in front of us and we knew his crime, surely all of us would condemn him. But David embraces something that in his day had not yet been seen, Namely, he looked forward and had faith to believe that he was counted righteous. In fact, David, in these two short verses, verses, gives us one of the clearest, most helpful illustrations of justification found in the Bible. In verses 1 and 2, he will highlight both realities of this glorious gospel truth of justification. And he's going to find their the absolute foundation for his joy. Look with me at verse 1 and see the first of these glorious realities. Justification is, it's like the ultimate one-two punch. And here, David will unpack punch number one. He says in verse 1, the blessed man in verse 1 is described in two similar ways. First, his transgression is forgiven. And his sin is covered. It's truly just saying the same thing in a different way so that us, the reader, can clearly understand. The one whom God has forgiven, the sinful man who has repented and believed in God, his sin is cast out as far as the east is from the west. He's loved by an almighty and compassionate father who desires to be in communion with those who bear his image. Here's the easiest way to remember the first punch of justification. It's just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. Your record expunged. Your slate washed clean. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from every sin. But now look at verse 2. In verse 2, David says that the blessed man is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And said differently, this man has a spirit in which there's no deceit. Again, this is wonderful news, but understand what this means. This means that the second blessing for David, his second reason for joy and hope, is that he needs to lead an upright life. And even more so, like he says down in verse 11, he needs to have an upright heart. 
He must persist in life with no deceit in his spirit. And surely David would look at that from the pit of his sin and feel like he'd never be counted clean. But you know what I think. I think that David believes in punch number two of, his just, of the justification knockout that apart from his works, God has counted him righteous. But don't just take my word for it. Let's flip forward to Romans 4 and hear from the Apostle Paul. Romans 4, 4 through 8. Let me read that for you. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here Paul quotes Psalm 32. Oh, my iPad is saying it's too hot and needs to cool down before I can use it again. Give me a moment. I think she's gone. All right. That's all right. Um, So Paul quotes from Psalm 32 here. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, what Paul explains here is truly what David understood to be true. In verse 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness apart from works. This truly is the foundation of David's belief that not only is his sin cast out as far as the east is from the west, but he is truly counted righteous in God's eyes. Paul explains this further in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and for there is no distinction. David and Abraham, as Paul will say here, both of them are looking forward, looking forward in faith, knowing that they will be counted righteous faith like the canal which flows through justification in this water that flows through washes david clean and covers him with the righteousness of christ this is the true foundation of his joy david looks forward and sees that apart from his wretched works god has graciously credited to him Christ's righteousness, a gift that he could never understand. And even more so, Abraham and David now look forward in faith and they see a Messiah who will come to them and to their people, but will also come through them and their line. This morning, we see in Psalm 32 that even in the face of egregious sin, David was joyful. He's joyful because God heard him and forgave him. He's joyful because God 
hid him. He protected him. He covered him. But the main reason why David was joyful in the face of sin is he knew that apart from his works, Christ's righteousness had been imputed to him. So this morning, if you're in sin, if you're baking under this unrelenting sun, you feel the Spirit working in your life if you've never repented and confessed your sin in front of a holy God, there is no better time. If you're watching, there is no better time. Don't go another moment in this crisis of conscience. Don't go another moment without this joy and blessing in your life. For the believer, the only thing we do when we hide in sin is we hide from Christ's joy and blessing in our life. Let's pray.